This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. This episode is supported by the FX original series, Reservation Dogs. From Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, Reservation Dogs is a half-hour comedy that follows the adventures of four indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma. Reservation Dogs. All episodes now streaming exclusively FX on Hulu. Just a note before we get started. The stories we're sharing this season touch on different kinds of trauma. Please take care of yourself while you listen. I was removed during that deep systematic removal where churches were involved, social workers. You may remember Sandy Whitehawk from earlier this season. She was removed from her family and tribe before Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act. As an adult, Sandy struggled with addiction. On her path to sobriety, she got counseling. And one day, her counselor said something that shook her. You've really faced all the abuse. You've done really good work. And you're, you know, you're on your way to all the healing from the violations that you had. But there's one thing you don't know. She goes, you don't know what it means to be a woman of color, but that's who you are. And I was like, wow. I'd never, ever thought of myself as a woman of color. I certainly was treated like one, but I, I didn't know what it meant for me to be able to say it. And that spurred my desire to go home and uh, find my relatives. Two months later, Sandy got the chance. My friend uh, had to go to Colorado Springs for a training. And she said, you want to go to Colorado Springs? I go, uh, could we go via Rosebud, South Dakota? Everything about that trip was a miracle. Sandy didn't have much of a plan. Her mom had passed away, but she had the names of some of her siblings. What she didn't have was a phone number or an address or any contact information. So we drove onto the reservation and didn't know really where to go. Someone finally told me to go to the hospital. This man came into the lobby and asked if he could help me, and I told him my story. And he goes, well, I know your brother. And I'm like, oh, wow, you're kidding. And I said, geez, do I look like him? And he goes, yes, you do, through the smile. And I was like, oh, my God. That man made a few phone calls. The people he called called other people. And as Sandy sat and waited, a little phone tree tracked down her family. And we drove to a softball park where there was a memorial softball game going on for one of my relatives. And we get to out of the car and and um he says there's your uncles over there it was the first time sandy had seen her family since she was a toddler she was 35 he went up to my uncle and talked to him in lakota first and then turned and and said and here she is and he said that in english and he just looked at me and he smiled so big sandy spent the whole afternoon at the softball game those kinds of moments, you know, just take years off your spirit that's so heavy of 
my adoptive mom telling me, they didn't want you. They didn't want you at all. That's why you're here with me. I wanted you. They didn't want you. They threw you away. I just remember we were visiting at one point. I just, we sat there for the afternoon and he said, you know, your mother loved you. She was a good woman, but you know, she, and he didn't have a word. And I just said, she struggled. And he goes, yeah, yeah, she struggled some, but she loved you. You're listening to This Land, a podcast about the present day struggle for Native rights. From Crooked Media, I'm your host, Rebecca Nagel. Gohin Daudon Dalekayetli Gaylan, citizen of Cherokee Nation. This season, we're following how a string of custody battles over Native children turned into a federal lawsuit, threatening everything from tribal sovereignty to civil rights. I've spent four years investigating and reporting on the big federal lawsuit, Rakeen v. Holland. Our team uncovered a web of special interests, people who are attacking the Indian Child Welfare Act to prop up the adoption industry, undermine tribal sovereignty, and build conservative power. And you might think that's the center of the case, but it's not. At the center are Native American families, That's who will be most impacted by the final outcome. So we're spending this episode with their stories. At the heart of the Brackeens case are four Native American children, a Pueblo child, an Ojibwe child, a Navajo child, and a child who is Navajo and Cherokee, or in their own languages, Tiwa, Ojibwe, Diné, and Jalagi. All but one of these children is growing up in a white home, and the future of one toddler, Yaslin, still hangs in the balance. Since Texas courts granted the Brackeens custody of Antonio and Yaslin, they've taken the kids to Hawaii, the beach in Florida, and even on a cruise. But there was one family trip Jennifer Brackeen did not look forward to. Yaslin's court-ordered visit to Navajo Nation. To say I've been dreading this since it was announced would be an understatement. I wouldn't say it was fun, and I'm not excited about doing it again, which we have to, but we made the most of it and tried to make memories as a family. This is from Jennifer's blog, read by an actor. On the blog, Jennifer calls Yaslin baby cakes. Baby Cake started her week with some bio family, and we decided to do some hiking. It was pretty hot, and we underestimated our water needs, which is bad, bad, bad. Lesson learned. Yasin wasn't on the hike because she was with her family as mandated by the court. But Antonio was. He was so tough and loved climbing on everything and didn't have to be carried much until the end and the lack of water, facepalm. He definitely fits right in with our active crew. Antonio was on Navajo Nation, where his siblings, aunts, uncles, and cousins live. And instead of spending the day with his Navajo family, the Brackeens took him hiking. When Jennifer decided to become a foster parent, she blogged about why it was a sacrifice. As she fought for custody of Antonio and then Yaslin, she still wrote about it as a sacrifice. No, we didn't really want to adopt again. We didn't want four kids. We didn't want to start over again. We just didn't. 
According to the blog, adopting Yaslin wasn't what Jennifer wanted to do. It was what God wanted her to do. When we started fostering, it was a decision to say yes to whatever God was asking us to do. With His help, of course. And we knew this was what God wanted us to do. So even though our selfish wants made the decision hard, we wanted to go forward. The Brackeens say they're fighting ICWA because the law doesn't look out for the best interest of the child. But it's hard to tell what best interest the Brackeens are looking out for because they keep contradicting themselves. Since the Brackeens became foster parents, three children have been placed in their home. They asked CPS to take the first foster child back after five months because the child was difficult. They fought to adopt their second foster child, Antonio, because they said moving him would be disruptive. And then they fought for custody of Yaslin, Antonio's little sister, a child they hadn't fostered. She wasn't living in their home. And two other families wanted to adopt her, the foster family who raised her for the first 10 months of her life, and a blood relative, her great aunt. But the Brackeens wanted custody because they had adopted Yaslin's brother. We wanted her to grow up with her brother and vice versa. We wanted them to have each other for support and for all the things that only the two of them share. So what is the best interest of the child? It can't be attachment and stability because they've asked for foster children to be moved. And it can't be that children should stay with family with people who look like them and share things only biological family can share, because then they wouldn't be fighting Yaslin's blood relative, and they wouldn't be fighting the Indian Child Welfare Act. We're still waiting to find out whether or not the Supreme Court will hear the case, but there's good reason to assume they will. And whatever they decide, it will have an enormous impact. The Supreme Court can help Native communities heal from generations of family separation. Or it can set the stage for more generations to be taken. What that means for people like Sandy after the break. Today's episode is brought to you by FX's Reservation Dogs. The Hollywood Reporter called the first season of the original comedy a distinctive, wonderfully cast triumph of representation and ranked it the number one best TV show of 2021. This season, Reservation Dogs continues to follow our favorite gang of indigenous teens in rural Oklahoma, with each of them trying to forge their own path in hopes of one day making it to California. FX's Reservation Dogs is now streaming only on Hulu. This land is brought to you by Feels. CBD isn't about what you feel. It's about what you don't feel. Stress, anxiety, pain. I use CBD for some neck and back pain and like it because it doesn't have harmful side effects that even some over-the-counter painkillers have. 
And Feels is a better way to feel better. Feels is a premium CBD that will help to keep your head clear and feel your best. It's hassle-free, delivered directly to your door. CBD naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. There's no hangover or addiction. Place a few drops of Feels CBD oil under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. Or if you need a dose of chill on the go, pop one of Feels new CBD infused mints for a clear-headed feeling and bonus fresh breath. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding your right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. In fact, Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience so that you find your perfect dose. The Feels customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best use of your CBD. Joining the Feels monthly membership makes your self-care easy. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel anytime. Start feeling better with Feels. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash land and you'll get 40% off your first three months with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash land to become a member and get 40% automatically taken off your first three months with free shipping. Feels.com slash land. On one of Sandy's trips back to Rosebud, she was at the tribe's big annual event, the Rosebud Fair. So I was just sitting at the powwow and I was visiting with this elder that my brother had introduced me to and came close to the end of the afternoon session. And I, I teased her. I said, oh, Clara, I said, I'll go get a soup. At the end of the afternoon session, a big meal is served. Everyone gets to eat, but protocol says that elders go first. And I teased her and said, I love waiting on elders because I can sneak me a plate too. <laughs> But the announcer said, before we break for supper, we're going to have a special. The special was a time in the powwow used to honor a Korean War veteran. The veteran and his family were called out to the center of the arena. As the honor song started, he slowly made his way around the circle. And the song that was being sung just sounded so beautiful. And I asked Clara... I said, what is this song? And she said, this is an old veteran song. And she was telling me, translating the words. And it was so beautiful. It was just did something to my heart. When the honor beats hit, everyone raised their hands. And I asked her, I said, why do they do that here? And those are the kinds of questions adoptees will have. And you feel real pesty when you're wanting to ask because you know it means something. And she said, well, when they're raising their hands like that, we're thinking about those veterans who uh, gave their life for us. As each round of honor beats started, Clara explained to Sandy what they meant. And eventually she got to where she said, and now we're thinking of those veterans who are making their way home coming back to our communities after their service. And we're saying, um, welcome back. We're glad you're home. We're glad you're here. And that's when it hit me. I hadn't even been thinking about adoptees, but that's when it hit me that I had never heard a song for adoptees in a way of doing it in the community as this was being done through this special. Adoptees like Sandy were also making their way back home through trauma and loss that impacted the whole community. 
But Sandy had never seen that acknowledged publicly, at least not like this. As the honor song went on, other veterans were called out to the arena. Sandy, being a veteran, stood up to go. And as I turned to get myself ready to walk down the bleachers and go out into the arena, I was looking at that couple. And the way the sun was shining and the way the drums sounded and the way everyone looked in that arena, it just seemed like nothing bad had ever happened to any of us. Just for that moment, Sandy couldn't shake the powerful feeling she had that day. So I kept thinking about that, that I'd never heard a song welcoming um, our relatives back who had been taken away through adoption and foster care. And I didn't tell anybody because I kind of thought I was being presumptuous and who am I to be thinking things like that? I don't know nothing. But again, the right people were put in Sandy's path. At an event in Wisconsin, Sandy met an elder named Chris Leith. Leith was a citizen of the Prairie Island Indian community and the spiritual advisor to the National Indian Child Welfare Association. One morning, they sat across from each other at breakfast, and Sandy just told him what she was thinking. And I said, and I've been around a while now, not, you know, been to a lot of the gatherings, and I've never heard anybody talk about us publicly never heard any welcome, and it would help everyone. I said, wouldn't it help the community? Wouldn't it help the relatives who lost us? And so when I was sharing that with him, I realized, I started thinking, oh, goodness, I'm probably overstepping my boundaries here because, you know, he is an elder and and he has, if this was supposed to happen, he would have known. He would have done something already. I almost wanted to take the words back and put them in my mouth and and just act like it didn't happen. But then when I got to the part where I said, and there is no song, you know, and I know there's a song for everything. And we make a song if there isn't one. And that's when he just stopped eating, put his fork down. And he said, you know, you're right. You're right. There should be a song. I'll make sure there's a song. Chris Leith reached out to an Oglala Lakota songwriter named Jerry Dearly, and Dearly wrote the song, an honor song for adoptees, a song to welcome them home. Soon, communities started requesting the song, and that's when Sandy's work really began. She started meeting other adoptees and creating spaces for them to heal together. When you think how many people have been impacted by Child removal is daunting at times. So I don't think there's a family, Indian family, that doesn't have a story of some relative whose child was in foster care or adopted out. Being an adoptee myself and the experiences I went through as I met other adoptees, I saw that our experiences were similar. And I felt bad because... Quite a few of the adoptees I met had not been able to make connection, and they had that same sense of loss. You could just see it in their eyes. They felt so separated and so far away from anything Native. 
that Gibson Dunn lawyer Matthew McGill, the adoption attorney Mark Fidler, and even the Brackeens agree that what happened to Sandy and her generation is tragic. But they say that tragedy is in the past. And today, the Indian Child Welfare Act is no longer needed. But the systemic removal of Native children is still happening at rates similar to the 1970s. And behind those shocking statistics are adoptees and their families. Michelle Bender, citizen of Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, was adopted in 1979, right after ICWA was passed. Throughout my entire life, I struggled with, I had a severe, you know, identity crisis because I wasn't white, but I I lived in the white world. Shauna King, citizen of Mandan, Hadatsa, and Arikara Nation, was placed in foster care in 1988. The day that I entered foster care completely shut that off. I never was able to attend another powwow. I never was able to see family. I didn't have any relationship with the sisters that I have growing up. There was this, like, severe knife that just cut off that part of my life. Sunny Redbear, citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, was adopted by a white couple in the early 1990s. We grew up well off, you know, so we would go on a lot of trips and we'd go to, like, Disneyland and, like, fancy hotels and things like that, you know, and literally me and my brother would be, like, the only brown people everywhere we went. Dad would say things like, wow, isn't this hotel so beautiful like everywhere we went he always had to remind us how blessed we were and you know never heard him say that to his other children but it's almost like two lost children trying to find them their way out of you know these woods I have oftentimes like thought to myself if if I had had support culturally and spiritually Um, emotionally and just like on who I was, where I came from, who, like, who would I be today? More after the break. After this past year, you've probably heard of at least one person who decided to change things up. It might have been moving across the country, leaving that toxic job, or maybe realizing you're ready to adopt that pet. And we usually only talk about how these stories end, when in reality, the far more interesting moments probably happened right in the middle. More Than This is a new podcast following individuals who chase their own personal what-ifs and the life-altering shifts they experienced along the way. Hosted by fashion editor-turned-author Danielle Prescott, More Than This comes from Vox Creative and Straight Talk Wireless. Listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. For a long time, the main question I wanted to answer was why? Why are all these people attacking ICWA? Was it self-interest? Simply put, money and power? We found economic incentives with direct ties to the lawyers bringing these cases. 
and a paper trail laying out how the attack on ICWA is part of a bigger agenda to build conservative power, which means these children, these toddlers, are just tools. They're just a means to an end. But we also found evidence that some ICWA opponents believe they're helping and are fighting ICWA for personal or ideological reasons, which is almost worse. Because it means a handful of non-Native people can decide what they think is best for Native children, without evidence, and in opposition to almost every tribe in the United States. But they have enough money and power to take their case all the way to the Supreme Court. In our reporting, we found evidence of both, greed and charity. It surprised me, but it shouldn't have because we've lived this cycle before, where a combination of white greed and white charity determined what was best for Native children. And that's how we got boarding schools, the Indian Adoption Project, and social workers snatching children from their yards. For generations, in the attack on Indigenous rights, Native children have been the tip of the spear. As a country, we barely know that history let alone have learned from it. So why would this time be different? Years after Sandy saw that honor song for the Korean War veteran, she was back at the same arena for the Rosebud Fair. But this time, Sandy was the one hosting the special. In honoring for relatives who had been adopted out or placed in foster care. Okay, adoptees, adoptees, Sandy, Sandy, Manalo. When Sandy was called into the arena, the sky was pitch black. A few thousand people were packed into the arbors or spread out in lawn chairs. The sun had slipped below the land, but the arena was bright. Old friends and family ran into each other, children played, and Sandy made her way to the announcer stand, took the microphone, and turned to address the crowd. Good evening, friends and relatives. My heart is just jumping and leaping inside. I'm trying to calm myself so that I make sense. Many people think that being in the white world has a lot of opportunities and that we lived a good life. Some had opportunity, some had some stability, but what we didn't have is that identity, knowing who we are, knowing where we come from. Some of us had horrible experiences, so not only were we not in the safety of the circle of our people, we were out there going through a combat of sorts and then eventually trying to make our way home. We were that generation yet to come when our ancestors prayed for us. They wanted us to know who we are. They prayed that we would be able to make our way back. So we're not, as adoptees, we're not looking to be pitied, we're not looking, we're not victims. We're your relatives who have been stolen 
and we made our path back. So for those of my relatives who are out here, this song is for you. This healing, we pray, will go into that place in your heart where no words go, where no words can be expressed. As relatives who had been adopted out or placed in foster care walked in a slow circle around the arena, the crowd stood up. People got up from their bench or out of their lawn chair, removed their hats, and stood facing the adoptees. At the end of the song, the adoptees stood in the middle of the arena. A long line formed, a line of people who came up to shake their hands. People that they knew, people that they had never met, children that were carried on the hips of their mothers and older ones led by hand, dancers in their full regalia and spectators wearing t-shirts. It took a while, but one by one, the crowd welcomed them home. This is the last episode of season two of This Land. Thank you so much for listening. We will be continuing to report on the Brackeen's case as it goes to the Supreme Court. And I want to say a special thanks to all of the adoptees and families who trusted us with their stories. This Land is reported, written, and hosted by me, Rebecca Nagel, Goheen Dawadon Chalek Ayatlikela, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting this season from Maddie Stone, Martha Troyan, citizen of Obi Shikakong, Laxul First Nation, and Amy Westervelt. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are John Favreau, Sarah Geismer, Lyra Smith, and Katie Long. With special thanks to Allison Falzetta. From Critical Frequency, our managing producer is Amy Westervelt. Our senior producer is Sarah Ventry, and our story editor is Rekha Murthy. Additional editing from Martha Troyan and Polly Danetclaw, who is Dene. Sound design by Lyra Smith, Mark Bush, and Charlotte Landis. Original score composed by Jared Tate, citizen of Chickasaw Nation. Our outro song is an honor song for adoptees, written and sung by Jerry Dearly, who is Oglala Lakota. Our fact checker is Wudan Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton, founder of the First Amendment Project. 
Podcast art by Kelly Gonzalez, citizen of Cherokee Nation. Additional reporting from producer Allison Herrera, who is Holon Selenin. Additional thanks for this episode to Drew Nicholas and the crew behind the documentary Blood Memory. You can find it online at bloodmemory.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people find us. And please share it with your friends. If you have a tip or information to share related to our reporting, you can do that securely and anonymously through our secure drop. You can find a link in the show notes. This season of This Land touches on different forms of family, childhood, and racial trauma— if you feel like you could use support, please check our show notes or website thislandpodcast.com to find resources for adoptees and survivors of childhood trauma, abuse, foster care, and boarding schools. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.